Welcome to the Christadelphian Classics Podcast, brought to you by Wilderness Voice. Elpis Israel, written in 1849 by Brother John Thomas. Part 3rd. The Kingdoms of the World in Relation to the Kingdom of God. Chapter 2. Roman Babylon and the Resurrection of the Witnesses. The sin power in its war against the seed of the woman in the West, symbolized by the beasts and their image. God will surely avenge his saints. The crimes for which the nations are being judged stated. The geography of the lake of fire where the judgment sits. The saints, the executioners of the little horn. They are raised from political death for this purpose. Events connected with their resurrection, the three days and a half of their unburied state explained. Their ascension, end of 1260 years, of the time of the beast. The fourth beast of Daniel's vision, the ten-horned and two-horned beasts, and the image of the sixth head of the ten-horned beast, are so many different symbols which represent the Simpa in its European constitution. The apocalyptic beasts and their image are introduced into the 13th chapter of Revelation to represent certain things in relation to the little horn, to its eyes and to its mouth, which could not have been set forth in the symbol of the Roman dominion seen by Daniel. In this prophet, the eyes of the little horn are said to be like the eyes of a man, which gave it a look more stout than its fellow horns. Of the mouth it is said that it spake very great things, which were words against the Most High, and that, because of the voice of these great words, consumption and final destruction came upon the whole beast. This is the nearest approach the eyes and mouth make to that order of men called the popes. They are represented as an audacious and blasphemous power, wearing out to the saints of the Most High and changing times and laws. And concerning the saints it is added, they were given into his hand until a time, times, and a dividing of time. Under a new symbol, some additional information is given respecting the eyes and mouth in the exercise of their power, etc. They are inserted into an image, which is said to resemble that head of the ten-horned beast, which had been wounded in its power, throne, and jurisdiction over the third part of the Roman world. This was the sixth, or imperial head. Hence the eyes and mouth were part of an imperial image. Now when we look into the testimony, we find that it did not set up itself, but is the puppet of another power represented by a beast with two horns, which answers to the little horn itself, minus the eyes. The mouth of the little horn of the two-horned and of the ten-horned beasts is common to the three symbols. It is mouth to them all, 
it is said to be like the mouth of a dragon. Hence it is Roman and imperial, the speaking organ of the three. Now the same things are affirmed of it by John as by Daniel. He says, It speaks great things and blasphemes against God, to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle and them that dwell in the heaven. And then it is added that it was given to him to make war with his saints and to overcome them. It also continues the same length of time which is expressed by 42 months instead of by time, times and dividing of time. For it is clear that as long as the beast lives, so long will its mouth continue to speak. Now in the exercise of the power given to it, the imperial or papal image spoke, and in consequence of its speaking it caused all to be killed who would not do homage to it. It also caused all its subjects to be marked with the sign of a cross in their right hand in ordination, and on their foreheads in paedorentism, that is, infant sprinkling. And unless a man had this mark, it would not permit him to buy or sell as a spiritual soul merchant in its bazaars. The symbols of this chapter of Revelation, it may also be remarked, represent the Gentiles in their civil and ecclesiastical constitution who tread down the holy city. This is evident from the testimony that the beast with its ten horns and mouth of a lion possessed power over all kindreds and tongues and nations. From what has been advanced, the reader will then perceive that two parties are represented which are antagonists, namely, the saints and the sin power. Hence he has before him a symbolical exhibition of the sentence upon the serpent, saying, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. The saints are marshalled on the side of the woman, and their persecutors on the side of the serpent. The war has been long, fierce, and bloody. But the saints' victory is certain, and the destruction of the beasts and their image inevitable and sure. In the previous chapter I have briefly sketched the cruelties practised by the ten horns, the little horn and the ecclesiastical image upon the witnesses and the holy city, called the saints in the aggregate, in all the countries in which they have appeared. France and the bloody House of Austria have been preeminent in the strife. They are died in infamy of every kind, which they have enacted on the most virtuous of the human race. In all their deeds of fiendishness, they have been applauded by the archdemon of the papacy, who styles them his beloved sons, and the mercenary instruments of his cruelty, his dear children. Does the reader suppose that the just and merciful Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of those who keep his commandments and have his testimony, hath looked on the fiendism of the sin power with indifference, and that he will permit their wrongs to die unavenged? 
If he do, he has greatly mistaken God's character and knows nothing at all of the awful judgments he has decreed against those who bruise the heel of his beloved. Did he judge Egypt for oppressing Israel, though at the time idolaters? Did he sink Sodom into the volcanic abyss for its crimes? And did he punish Judah with pestilence, famine, sword and scattering for eighteen centuries because of the unbelief of the truth as it is in Jesus? And for killing his servants? And will he not avenge his elect, whom he hath chosen, upon the demonic powers which have continued to crush them? The scripture saith, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. If the blood of the murdered Abel crying from the ground was heard of God and avenged, what shall be said of that exceeding great and piercing cry, which upon the same principle ascends to his throne from that oceans of blood, which has been poured out like water from the hearts of his slaughtered saints. Doth it not cry aloud to heaven against popes, emperors, kings, hypocritical and blaspheming priests, and their hordes of mercenaries, and against all ecclesiastical abitors of arbitrary power in church and state? Yes, that voice, though unheard and unheeded by those who worship the beast and their image, continually ascendeth and hath entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? The hour has come, and the death knell of the destroyer has sent forth its clangour throughout the dominion of the Roman beast. As in the case of Sodom, though unseen by the eye of the flesh, God hath come down to see if they have done altogether according to the cry. He has found it even so. Their sins have reached unto heaven. Therefore he will reward them double for all the evil with which they have afflicted his saints. Such then is the case before us. The great national crime has been committed and perpetuated of converting the truth of God into a lie, of blaspheming his name, and of bruising the heel of his saints. All nations are guilty of this, and as national offences can only and must necessarily be punished by national judgments. Retribution is pouring out upon them according to the word of the Lord. The outline I have sketched has brought us down to the epoch of the death of the two witnesses. Daniel beheld this and at the same time received the information that the little horn was to triumph over the saints to the end of the beast's life which it arrives at by the end of 1,260 years. This long period having elapsed, he beheld a sight, the knowledge of which must rejoice the heart of everyone who sympathises in the award of justice to them who are oppressed. He saw a revolution in human affairs that completely reversed everything that had previously existed. Instead of the saints being worn out,
any longer. He saw the power of judgment given to them to take away the dominion of the little horn, to slay the beast, and to destroy his body with the burning flame, so that nothing represented by the symbol should be left. The territory which is to be the scene of this judgment is all that region comprehended in the Roman dragon and in the Austrian and German domain. By the Roman dragon I mean the old Roman territory extending from the Euphrates to the German Ocean including Turkey, Italy, Switzerland, Roman Africa and the other countries contained within the limits of the Ten Toe Kingdom. Upon this territory, then, our attention must be fixed if we would discern the progress of the events by which the beast's destiny is fulfilled. He is to be destroyed by the burning flame. It is evident, therefore, that the territory of his dominion will be turned into a region of flame, in which the populations being everywhere insurgent and contending with fire and sword against their oppressors, it will become a lake of fire burning with brimstone. Into this are cast alive the two-horned beast of the earth and the image, which before the end of its existence is stripped of its imperial character and reduced to the humbler dignity of a prophet, and that a false one. What remains of this chapter will be occupied in explaining the words of the prophet. The judgment shall sit, and they shall take away his dominion to consume and to destroy it unto the end. The judgment sits upon the whole beast and consists of slaying and burning. This distinction is preserved in the Apocalypse, for whilst the beast and false prophet are cast alive into a lake of fire, the remnant, or the horns that remain, are slain with the sword of him that sits upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth. With the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. This implies a prolongation of existence to certain powers beyond that of the beast and false prophet. These will be totally destroyed by the saints, but the remnant are reserved for a future fate at the hand of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Daniel makes the same distinction in the judgment of the fourth beast. Speaking of it as a whole, he says, I beheld till the beast was slain and his body given to the burning flame. The consuming affects the body and the destroying the remnant of his political carcass by the sword. Turkey and the Austro-Papal dominions constitute the body and little horn of the beast. These go into perdition first. They entirely disappear from among the powers that be, as completely as a carcass cast into Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. After their fate is sealed, a power arises to conquer the toe or horn kingdoms, which are not suppressed, but made tributary to the conquering power, and are incorporated as vassal kingdoms into his dominion, and under his banner meet the Lord of hosts in battle in the plains of another Waterloo called Armageddon, 
where both he and they are overcome and lose their crowns forever. Speaking of the little horn or austro-papal power, the prophet says they shall take away his dominion. Now the context shows that the agents indicated in they are the saints, with whom the horn has contended so long. In the 22nd verse he says, Judgment was given to the saints. Having received power to judge, what use did they make of it? This is answered in the 26th verse, to take away his dominion. And if a further inquiry be made by what means, the reply is by consuming and destroying it with fire and sword. There is a fitness in this. The Austro-Papacy has been established by fraud and violence and shored up to the end of its existence by murder. It has fattened on the blood of the two witnesses in all countries of its dominion, and therefore the rule of the judgment is to give them blood to drink, for they are worthy. This is the fate impending over Austria and all thrones which have given their power to execute the will of the Roman prophet. But to this some may object. How can the saints execute the judgment written, seeing that the beast overcame them and killed them in the reign of Louis XIV? It is very certain that they cannot, unless they are the subjects of a political resurrection, and this the testimony affirms they should be. But before they rose from political death, they were to remain politically dead, but unburied for three symbolic days and a half, after which the spirit of political life from God was to enter into them, and in consequence they were to stand upon their feet, ascend to power and strike terror into all their enemies who beheld them. They were to lie dead and unburied upon the broad way of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Jesus was put to death in Judea. But then Judea was a Roman province at the time, and therefore a part of the great city. For all the Roman provinces were regarded merely as an extension of Rome, which ruled over them. Inasmuch as the Roman city was made coextensive with the empire by the Edict of Caracalla. This empire, then, as a whole, is figuratively designated by the Spirit as Sodom and Egypt. As Sodom because of its filthiness, and as Egypt because of its darkness. And as Sodom and Egypt conjointly because the fate of Sodom awaits Rome and the judgments of Egypt, the nations that acknowledge its spiritual dominion. The ten horns of the Roman dragon are the ten parts of this great city, the most ample of which, as will be seen by consulting a map of the Roman Empire, is the realm of France. It is therefore styled the broad way by the spirit. Here the witnesses receive their death blow 
which was speedily followed by their political death in all other parts of the great city. Though politically dead, the witnesses were still visible or unburied. The democracy and the Calvinists still existed in France, and democracy and dissent in England, where thousands of the Huguenots found refuge. But in all countries of the beast, they were at zero in political affairs. In their exile from Europe, multitudes found an asylum in the American wilderness. There they mingled with their brethren whose progenitors had expatriated themselves from Britain to escape the galling yoke of church and state Toryism, which was carrying itself with a high hand. Thus, by the tyranny of the beast, liberty and democracy were crushed in Europe and simultaneously planted in American soil. But even there the witnesses were not permitted to rest, for they lived in the other hemisphere, though dead in this. Home tyranny claimed the right to tax the unrepresented, the descendants of the Puritans and Huguenots resisted, and refused to pay. A profligate and extortionate government goaded them into insurrection, by which they became entitled to the honourable distinction of rebels, and by their success to that of patriots. The struggle was between might and right. An arbitrary government demanded tribute, and an ignorant clergy tithes, and the democracy, religious and secular, gave them lead and steel. This was the old fashion in which they had been accustomed to devour their enemies during their 1,260 years' contest with the beast. But the conflict was unequal, and but for the suicidal policy of one of its horns, the witnesses would have again been overcome. The liberty-hating and the heretic-slaying Bourbons sent a fleet and army to enable liberty, equality and fraternity to triumph in America. Not that they hated sectarianism and democracy less than formerly, but that they hated England more. Lafayette and his companions, though scions of nobility, became the sons of freedom. Britain was checkmated, and the model republic founded and acknowledged by all the horns of the beast. There, then, beyond the broad waters of the mighty deep, the tree of liberty, planted by the two prophets of human rights, spreads its ample and expanding branches, affording shade and shelter for the persecuted and oppressed of all nations who may be fortunate enough to escape the great iron teeth and brazen claws of the all-devouring monster of the sea. Peace being proclaimed, the French army returned to Europe in 1783. This proved a refreshing breeze to the democracy of that kingdom. Philosophers were hard at work teaching the people to despise the superstition of Rome, and the creatures that fattened upon it. They miscalled it Christianity, as if the religion of Christ had the remotest affinity to that of Sodom and Egypt.
but Romanism was the only view the people had of Christianity, for there had been no testimony born against it in France for 98 years. The priests taught them that the Romanism was the religion of the Bible, but would not permit them to look into it to see. Need one be surprised? then that when the democracy arose to judgment, it should abolish such a Christianity as that which had destroyed them, treat the Bible with contempt, and even deny the existence of a God who was supposed to sanction the falsehoods of Romanism or to approve its hypocritical and licentious priests. The liberalism of the American auxiliaries manifested itself soon after their return, in the appearance of an American party in French politics. The influence of this in connection with the scepticism of the philosophers became the breath of political life from God. It entered into the unburied witnesses, and they stood upon their feet, ready for action. Thus they drew their first breath in the very city where they had received their death blow, Paris. A few words may be offered here respecting the time signified by three days and a half, during which the two witnesses were deprived of political life. The apocalypse as a whole is a miniature representation of the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter. That is, of things in existence while John was in Patmos and of the things shortly to happen after he wrote and until the setting up of the kingdom. Everything is exhibited on a smaller scale than the reality, and the time of the symbols is in keeping with them. Thus multitudes of witnesses are reduced to two, and the years of their prophesying to days. It would have been a violation of the fitness of things to make them testify for 1,260 years, because this is far beyond the duration of human life, which is the rule of speaking in the case. So in indicating the time of their unburied state, the real time must be expressed in accordance with the physical laws. A dead body might lie in the open air for three days and a half without disappearing, but not three years and a half or three months and a half. Hence the symbol required the smallest possible period capable of expressing the real time of their political non-existence, and that is three days and a half. The time that elapsed between their death in 1685 at the revocation of the Edict of Nantes and their resurrection in 1790, the French Revolution, was 105 years. This is a period contained in three lunations and a half on the day for a year principle. It is harmoniously related to the 42 months of the downtreading of the holy city mentioned in Revelation 11 verse 2. That is to say, 42 months equals three and a half years, which in prophetic language would be expressed as three days and a half. This consideration led Mr. Bichonneau, a Baptist pastor in Newbury, England, in 1793, to conclude that lunar days were intended. 
taking the Jewish month of 30 days, for the 42 months of Revelation 11 verse 2 are coupled with the 1,260 days in verse 3, Mr. Bichonneau found that three and a half times 30, or 105 days, years, gave just the interval from the death of the witnesses in 1685 to their political resurrection in 1790 in the time of the Great French Revolution. Mr. Bichonneau, though cloudy on some points, was nevertheless sufficiently sound to be regarded as one of the witnesses. He did well in stirring up his own generation to the study of the Apocalypse, and discovering for us the true import of the three days and a half. His labour was not lost, and we thank our Heavenly Father for raising up such witnesses, whose memory the faithful in Christ Jesus do always delight to honour. Now, after three days and a half, the breath of life from God entered into the witnesses, that is, after the three months and a half of day years had fully expired, they stood upon their feet. The death period elapsed on February the 18th, 1789, and in two months and fourteen days after, being May the 4th, they accepted the invitation of a great voice from heaven, saying to them, Come up hither! This great voice was the royal proclamation by which the states-general were convened, and in which the witnesses took their seats as the third estate of the kingdom. They soon proved their existence there by the events which followed. They ascended to power in a portentous, that is, significant cloud, which burst upon the devoted heads of their enemies, and in the earthquake which followed they shook the world. The resurrection of the Calvinists and secular democracies in the great city constitutes a great and remarkable epoch in prophetic time. It was 1260 years from 8529. Now when we turn to the history of that period, we find that it also is dignified as a notable epoch in the times of the Gentiles. From 529 to December the 16th, 533, a period of four years and eight months, there were published the celebrated Code, Pandects, Institutes and Novels of Justinian. These were declared, says Gibbon, to be the legitimate system of civil jurisprudence. They alone were admitted in the tribunals and they alone were taught in the academies of Rome, Constantinople and Beritus. He addressed them to the Senate and provinces as his eternal oracles, and his pride under the mask of piety ascribed the consummation of this great design to the support and inspiration of the deity. These documents became the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of the Roman Empire. And as the new kingdoms of the West looked up to the majesty of Constantinople and the Episcopate of Rome as the founts of jurisprudence, civilization and religion, they gradually came to adopt the Justinian 
as the common law code of their kingdoms. An incident recorded in the memoirs of Lavalette will illustrate the truth of this. The events that preceded the grand drama of 1789, says he, took me by surprise in the midst of my books and my love of study. I was then reading the Esprit des Lois, a work that charmed me by its gravity, etc. I wished also to become acquainted with the code of the laws of France. But de Manger, to whom I mentioned my desire, laughed and pointed to the Justinian Code as the common law code of the kingdom. The Institutes were published in 533, and in that year, in the case of an appeal by the Emperor Justinian to the ecclesiastical decision of the Bishop of Rome, he addressed him as the head of all the holy churches of the empire. But the Justinian Code was not adopted by Europe simultaneously, nor in 534 when his labours were complete. He had made the Roman bishop spiritual head of the empire, but his supremacy was not acknowledged by the Tau kingdoms until about 75 years after. Students flocked from all of them to the schools of Rome, Constantinople and Veritas, where they studied the lore of the empire. And from these centres also, priests and missionaries were sent to propagate the faith and to convert the governments of the West to the religion of the Roman bishop. When this was accomplished, Roman law and Roman superstition struck deep root among the institutions of the West. The Roman high priest was regarded as their spiritual father, and the emperor as the imperial head of the divided, but still Roman, dominion of the east and west. This work required years to complete, but when finished, as it was about 606 or 608, we find the contest between the Bishop of Rome and the Patriarch of Constantinople for the spiritual supremacy of the world brought to a conclusion by the former being proclaimed universal bishop by the Emperor Phocas. From 529 to 604 is a period of 75 years, and from 533 to 608 is also 75 years, and between 604 and 608 the Bishop of Rome obtained his legal recognition which was celebrated by the erection of a statue to focus with the date of 608 inscribed upon it. This period of 75 years with a double beginning and a double ending of four years is the period of the civil and ecclesiastical constitution of the ten-horned beast when the Roman dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. Now this symbol is to continue forty and two months, which is the representative time of the continuance of the things, represented by the symbol expressed in miniature. It is the symbolical duration of the decemregal and imperial constitution of Roman Europe. Daniel expresses the same duration by the phrase time, times, and a dividing of time, which also represents 1,260 years. 
the beasts and their image, and the little horn and his eyes and mouth, are to prevail against the saints until the end of that period. The little horn and the two-horned beast and the image do not exist all that time, for they did not appear till 270 years after the Justinian epoch. But although they did not all rise from the earth and sea and attain to dominion at one and the same time, yet it is plainly revealed that they are all to lose their independence and finally their sovereignties at the end of the 1260 or 42 months of years, so that while the ten horns will have practised 1260 years from the time of focus, the little horn and his apocalyptic synonyms will have existed only somewhat more than 1,000. The Bishop of Rome, however, as lion mouth of the ten horns, will have passed through his 1260 years. Not to interrupt the train of thought before us, I shall finish what I have to say about the time of the beast before I return to the subject of the witnesses. The prophet says, Blessed is he that waiteth and cometh to the 1,335 days. The end of this period is a time of blessedness to the saints of the holy city, because like Daniel they shall stand in their lot in the end of the days. But so long as the fourth beast prospers, this cannot be. For the Gentiles tread down the holy city until the forty-two months expire. There will, however, be no delay of the resurrection on account of the practising of the beast, because it will have to be destroyed out of the way by the holy city. The prophet informs us that all things shown to him are to be finished after a time, times and an half, or twelve hundred and sixty years. And among these wonders is the resurrection of many of the dead to everlasting life. Justinian's legislation, A.D. 530-33, was all devoted to the building up and strengthening of the Catholic Church, while the legislation of the National Assembly, 1790-1793, was all directed to its destruction. It is a remarkable fact that these two mutually antagonistic and subversive systems of legislation flourished exactly 1,260 years apart from epoch to epoch, and that the one hour of 30 years added to it, or 1,290, brings us to the beginning of the outpouring of the sixth vial, A.D. 1820, upon the great river Euphrates. Is this indeed the true ending of Daniel's 1290? And if so, is A.D. 1865-6 the ending of the 1335, as well as of John's 40 and 2 months? If it be, then there is an epoch upon us of four years in any day of which Christ may come as a thief. This appears to me, at this writing, to be the correct interpretation of the times. It is, of course, impossible to say that the interpretation is without error. The ensuing years will determine this point beyond dispute. 
While I write, it is the most satisfactory to my mind. I have thought that Daniel's 1290 terminated in 1864 and his 1335 in 1909. But in writing this exposition of this chapter, the fact of the great earthquake resurrection of the witnesses being exactly 1260 years after the promulgation of the civil lord of the city and the hour of thirty years added, brings us to the beginning of the pouring out upon the desolator of the holy land, that which is determined, Daniel 9 verse 27, or 1290 years afterwards. I do not feel at liberty to persist in rejecting my original conviction that the 1290 ends in 1820 and the 1335 45 years after, or in the epoch current with 1865-1866 or thereabouts. In AD 800 came the restoration of the Roman Empire of the West, or establishment of the little Latin horn of Daniel and two-horned beast, and the image of the Apocalypse. This was 270 years from the publication of the Justinian Code, and 240 from the settlement of Italy, according to the Articles of the Pragmatic Sanction, by which Rome was degraded to the second rank among the cities of the Empire. The fourth trumpet, which proclaimed the smiting of the sixth head of the beast in its jurisdiction over a third part of the Roman territory, still continued its soundings. The events which pertain to it yet showed themselves in the wars between Justinian and the Vandals, Goths, and other people, until Italy was depopulated of many millions of its inhabitants. Under this trumpet the sovereignty of the eternal city suffered a total eclipse, so that the imperial day shone not upon her for a third part of it, and the night likewise. This was a day and a night of years, the minimum of time demanded by the nature of the eclipse. A day of years and night of years are each 360 years long, for as a day in symbolic time represent a year or 360 days, so if the decorum of the symbol required it, each of these days may represent a year. A scripture or Jewish day contains twelve hours, and a night likewise. Hence the third part of the day is four hours, and the third part of a night four hours also. An hour being a twelfth part is equal to thirty which multiplied by four gives 120 years for the third part of the day, and 120 years for the third part of the night, which added together make 240 years. Now if my calculation and interpretation be correct, it follows that Rome, in which there had been seven sovereignties from the foundation of the city, till the fall of the Gothic Kingdom of Italy in A.D. 553, should be no more the seat of empire from the degradation by the pragmatic sanction until the end of 240 years. In other words, that at the end of that period her eclipse should terminate 
and she should once more shine forth with imperial splendour. Now, no interpretation of prophecy is worth anything which is not sustained by facts. For prophecy is not a prediction of opinions, principles or feelings, but of tangible and stubborn facts. What then are the facts in the case before us? I give the answer to this question in the words of Gibbon. On the festival of Christmas, says he, the last year of the 8th century, i.e. 800, Charlemagne appeared in the church of St. Peter. After the celebration of the Holy Mysteries, Leo suddenly placed a precious crown upon his head, and the dome resounded with the acclamations of the people, Long life and victory to Charles, the most pious Augustus, crowned by God the great and pacific emperor of the Romans. The head and body of Charlemagne were consecrated by the royal unction, after the example of the Caesars, he was saluted or adored by the pontiff. His coronation oath represents a promise to maintain the faith and privileges of the church. And the first fruits were paid in his rich offerings to the shrine of the apostle. Gibbon styles him the restorer of the Western Empire which included France, Spain, Italy, Germany and Hungary, and from the restoration of which Europe, says he, dates a new era. Thus Rome's eclipse passed away, and her system was again illumined by the shining forth of the imperial sun, moon and stars over the third part from which they had been so long obscured.